Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. This is the Unseen Leadership Podcast, where we explore the unseen stories that shaped leaders into who they are today. If you're making a big decision and your goal is to try to please somebody or some group of people, uh, that could be dangerous because you may make a decision based on popularity rather than based on what's right or what you believe is right. And so, you know, for me, my goal is to make a decision that God would be pleased with. And my gauge on whether I did that or not was how I felt when I put my head on the pillow that night. Well, welcome to the Unseen Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chandler Vinoy, here as always with my co-host, Mike Kelsey. Mike, doing good? I'm doing good, man. And uh, I'm definitely doing good uh, because of the interview we get to do uh, today. So for those of you who are college football fans, which we're going to talk about the definition of what that means in just a second, Chandler. <laughs> um, but uh, we're excited to talk to Coach uh, Mark Rick, who is the former head football coach of the University of Georgia Bulldogs and the University of Miami Hurricanes and a longtime assistant coach for the Florida State University uh, Seminoles. He's uh, currently a football analyst for the ACC Network, and he's the author of his new book, Make the Call. Uh, Coach Rick, we are very excited to have you on today. I'm glad to be on. I'm excited about it. Let's do it. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, Coach Rick, my memories of growing up, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, so if you guys can't see right now, but he's got his Georgia Bulldog right behind him. And my right memories, here. my memories are just Coach Rick just always coming and kneeling and winning. Like I looked up your record against the Vols and it was 10 and five. And it lines up with many of my memories of being heartbroken after Georgia football games. So well, I'm sorry about that. If you're a Gator fan, it was the other way around. It was, it was five and 10. So oh, we, all, man. we all have our thorn in our side, I guess. Well, Chandler, I said we're going to just before we even get started, Coach Rick, I mentioned this to, to Chandler. So I'm from the D.C. area. I went to University of Maryland, College Park. And right. uh, so we had a good little run, you know what I mean? Football, basketball, some things. But it wasn't until I got friends from the South that I realized we're not really college football fans here. There's another <laughs> level right. of college football fan oh, in, yeah. in the South. So it's really good to have well, you on, man. On that note, I when I was at Florida State, as the offensive coordinator towards the end of my time there, I was there 15 seasons. And uh, when I was about to get the head job at Georgia, one of the, uh, actually the guy in my, who, who uh, taught the Sunday school class at the church in Tallahassee, he was a big Georgia fan. Well, he, he kind of caught wind. I was about to get that job and he shows up on my front porch just all fired up. And, and I was thinking this guy is the nuttiest fan in the history of, of college football. Then I go to Georgia and started going to some of them Bulldog clubs and they're all, they're all like, yeah. so they're, they're all truly fanatics. Like the, the term fan is uh, short for, but goodness gracious. And it doesn't right wear off. That. It doesn't wear yeah. off. It's like, you could be 63 and it just does it. it. I don't know. Southern college football, man, it's, it's strong. It is, man. It is. Well, Coach Rick, we're excited to have you on today and, and hear about your journey uh, in leadership and coaching and so many different things. So let's just hop in here. Can you walk us through a quick overview of the different leadership roles that you were uh, in over the years and how that led you to, to where you are today? Right. Well, 
I think when you look back and try to figure out when did you become a leader, when did you think you were a leader? I, I think for me, it started back in the playground. You know, we, I was just one of those guys that was organizing teams and organizing games and trying to decide who's going to pick teams and all that kind of deal. And then you play quarterback and I played quarterback in high school. And that's obviously a, uh, a position of leadership on that team. And I became a quarterback's coach at Florida State, 1986, under under Coach Bobby Bowden. And uh, so I stayed in that role for, I don't know, six, seven, eight years, somewhere in there. And then I became the offensive coordinator. Actually, I back up just to digress just a little bit. After four seasons at Florida State, I was two as a graduate assistant coach. Two is what they called volunteer status back in that day. But during during all those years, I was the quarterback's coach. After four years of that, I got a chance to get my first full-time paying job. That was at East Carolina University as the offensive coordinator there. And that was a job I was absolutely not ready for. Hmm. Um, But because I was at Florida State and we had all that success, people wanted to hire guys from schools like that even though I was kind of young young and inexperienced. And that was a big time learning experience for me. Uh, And I think God let me be there kind of in obscurity as I was making all my leadership mistakes. And I had all my fears of even being capable of doing that job, Hmm. not only leading players, but leading, leading men as coaching staff as well. So that was quite a learning experience. I stayed there 11 years, once 11 months, there one season and then <clears throat> went back to Florida state, became the coordinator there. And by the time I became the coordinator of Florida state, uh, I was much more ready because of my experience at East Carolina. And then, uh, after being at Florida state, 15 seasons and the coordinator about six or seven, I became the head coach at Georgia and, uh, was there 15 seasons doing that. And then three years at Miami once, we parted ways at Georgia. Hmm. Now you, you mentioned those, the, that time at Eastern Carolina and you know, you said, Hey, 11 months, it allowed me to make, <laughs> it allowed me to make mistakes in less of the, the, the spotlight. Uh, right. but, but you were there, uh, and you look back on that time and it can be one that maybe many people don't know about your story, but then it allowed you to be able to step into that coordinator role. Um, and for, you know, you might've been there and you, you might've thought, Oh man, I'm making these mistakes or maybe this is where I'm supposed to be. How did the, that learning experience right. set you up to be able to step into the coordinator at Florida state? Because that's a big jump. You're now in charge of the offense. You're, you're the right. name that people are going to say is, is the problem. Right. Well, going back to Florida state in those four years, I was there before East Carolina, I actually uh, came to know Christ in 1986 after the death of one of our players got shot and killed at a, at a party on campus and coach Bowden's um, basically had a team meeting and said, he didn't know where Pablo was. His name was Pablo Lopez. And he said, I don't know where Pablo's going to spend eternity. I don't, I don't know where he was in his faith. And mm. he said, and then he kind of presented the gospel to the guys. And I, I'm in the, I'm in the room as a graduate assistant coach. And uh, he said, he said, man, Pablo used to sit in that chair right there. He's gone. He goes, you guys are 18 to 22 years old. You think you're going to live forever. 
It's like Pablo thought he was. He goes, if that was you last night instead of Pablo, you know where you'd spend eternity. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm in the back of the room. He's talking to the players, but I'm listening, and the Holy Spirit kind of hit me in the heart. And uh, I was like, if it was me last night, I know where I'd go. It's, and it's not a good place. And mm-hmm. so that next morning, I, I went to Coach Bowden's office and prayed to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. And obviously, that was a huge game changer for me. And so I, I mentioned that because about three or four years into my walk, uh, I was praying for my faith to grow. And uh, so God said, okay, well, I'll send you to East Carolina. <laughs> and put you in a position that you're not ready for. So, That's great. Uh, and you, you mentioned Eastern Carolina. That was part of the problem. People don't, people don't recognize the school. But uh, anyway, so uh, my faith was about to grow. And, uh, you know, I, I really, I was working with two men that had already been coordinators that were, at least five to seven years ahead of me in their careers. And somehow I get to be the coordinator and, and they're not, you know, and mm. I kind of, I, I really literally was so uh, fearful of each day. I mean, at night I'd sweat myself to sleep and think about all the things I had to get done the next day and didn't feel like there was going to be time to do it. And then when you finally got there, you're, you finished by lunchtime, you know? And mm. so all these imagined fears are real fears to us as we go through it. And so during that time frame, uh, I was reading this book called The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale. And basically he just talks about memorizing scripture to condition your mind, renew your mind. And so I did that uh, on a consistent basis. And I, I think what happened to me during the time I was there was my, my faith finally grew stronger than my fear. And, uh, and then I had peace. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think, I think it's hard for faith and fear to live in the same mind. Hmm. And my, my, my fear was stronger than my faith and then help God help me grow my faith. Like I asked for, and, uh, you got to go through the pain before the glory, so to speak. And, uh, after I, uh, got, prayed up and got my mind right, then I really had a peaceful feeling about what was going on for the rest of the time that I was there at East Carolina. And, it, and it, you know, Coach Bowden hired me back 11 months later, and I became the offensive coordinator for him a few years after that. Hmm. And by then, I just I was just in a much better place in my spiritual life to handle that responsibility. Hmm. You know, you mentioned Coach Bowden just taking that opportunity, you know, with you in the room, sitting in the back uh, to really share his faith and to minister to that group of guys. And now you've had the the opportunity for so long now, not just to coach football, but to mentor and to pour into guys and to do so, you know, as a Christian. Is there any advice you would give leaders who are not leading in a, an explicitly Christian environment. They're not working at a church. They're not working for some Christian ministry. Any advice you would give them for how to be a light to the people they lead? Well, you know, I was obviously in a secular university at the university of Georgia and, uh, you know, they, they've got, you know, there's rules for this and the other. And when it comes to your faith and professing it and, uh, so for me, I learned pretty early on that guys were going to watch you more than they were going to listen to you. Uh, they were going to observe your life, and how you go about things. They 
I wanted them to observe me loving my wife like Christ loved the church. I wanted them to see me love my children and how my children responded to me. And mm. I wanted them to see how I treated them and how I treated the coaching staff that I was, you know, God had put me in authority over. So I think uh, you can certainly uh, shine your light just by how you live your life for one. And then the other is, you know, if people would ask me questions, like let's say, for example, the media might ask me how I handle my discipline. Well, how I handle my discipline may have everything to do with my, my faith. Hmm. So I'll, I'll tell them exactly that, you know, I use a lot of the principles uh, from the Bible and from Proverbs and things of that nature. And, and so, you know, if you ask me, I'll tell you, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was even a time when there was a, uh, a pre-season, uh, they called it, I think, First Friday, University of Georgia. It's it kind of a pep rally to kick off the school year and kick off the football season. Mm. They'd ask me to uh, speak to the, to the students every season, whoever showed up to this event. And so the first year or two, I'd always end in a, in a prayer for their well-being mm. and all that kind of deal. And uh, people caught wind of that. And about a few years of it, <clears throat> the, you know, we were getting pressure for me not to pray in public mm. uh, for the students. So I basically found out from a, a legal firm what my rights were, number one. And because they were 18 or older and because it was a voluntary meeting, they said, you could, you could pray all you want to whoever you want to mm. uh, because of that reason. Um, but instead of like, you know, bowing my neck and deciding we're going to make a point, what God gave me really the night before, he said, he said, pray for him now. Mm. So I prayed for him that night. And then the next day, I said, hey, I prayed for you guys last night, and this is what I prayed for. <laughs> that's next <laughs> so level I, right I, there. I prayed, but uh, <laughs> I'll give you a little wisdom there. And that's the thing about it is uh, when you're making decisions in life, I mean, for me, everybody makes decisions, decisions based on their belief system. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody has different belief systems. And, you know, my belief system was that, you know, I was a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, and I believed mm-hmm. You know, God's word. I believe God is creator and, and father God, you know. So, mm. I mean, when I make decisions, you know, my here's the deal about making decisions is you can you're going to make somebody happy. You're going to make somebody mad. You, you can't please everybody. Mm-hmm. And if you if you're making a big decision and your goal is to try to please somebody or some group of people, uh, that could be dangerous because mm. you may make a decision based on popularity rather than based on what's right or what you Mm. believe is right. And so, you know, for me, my goal is to make a decision that God would be pleased with. Mm. And my gauge on whether I did that or not was how I felt when I put my head on the pillow Mm. that night, you know, I mean, I might've made a decision and I put my head on the pillow that night. I go, you know what? That's, that's not a good decision. I'm a, I'm gonna wake up tomorrow and I'm going to change that decision if I can change it. And if I can't change it, I'll at least let everybody know that, you know, I blew it. Mm-hmm. You know, own it and and uh, and just apologize if you need to sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then move on, you know. But, 
if I had time to think things through, I would pray them through. And when I got peace with the decision, that's what I, that's when I would know to make it. If sometimes you got to make a decision in 30 seconds. Yeah. And so you, you hope that like for me personally, I always hoped I was prayed up to the point and I was thinking in the right mindset that I would make even the quick decisions in the in a way God would be pleased. Yeah. Well, I mean, CEOs, executive directors, <laughs> you know, you got your, your opening comments now for your next meeting. You know, I prayed for y'all last night. Uh, so <laughs> here's what I prayed. Here's what I prayed. <laughs> yeah. um, I love it. Well, can you tell us about uh, a pivotal moment uh, that you look back on that, that changed your leadership and your life? Well, I do think that big, that, that time in East Carolina was the biggest growth uh, time of my life in my faith mm-hmm. and in my ability to understand what leadership was about. And like I said, I was able to kind of live through that mostly in obscurity. Not everybody was watching what East Carolina was doing (laughs) on a weekly basis. That wasn't the first thing everybody went to turn to. But but some of the good things that happened, uh, even as a young coach, um, I had the experience of playing under Coach Howard Schnellenberger at the University of Miami, and he had brought the Miami Dolphins system to the University of Miami, to college football. So I learned that as a quarterback. And uh, I learned it more through the meetings than I did playing because I played by Jim Kelly. But <laughs> bottom line was I learned, I learned a lot of ball. Mm. And uh, I actually had an experience with the Miami Dolphins uh, for about a month before I got cut. But I, it, reinforced, it reinforced some of the things that I had learned from Coach Stellenberger. And what happened was um, Coach Bowden, the night before games, would always – we, he had what we called an iffy meeting. If this happens, then what are we going to do? If that happens, what are we going to do? And one of the ifs was third down and long. Mm. And so there was a, a play that we had put in that I, we had run at the University of Miami. And uh, I, I had enough uh, ability uh, to communicate with the offensive coordinator at the time to say, you know, maybe we should put this in as one of our options. Mm. We put the play in and then we explained it. To Coach Bowden the night before, uh, you know, I got a, I got an opportunity my first time as a coach to present a play to the staff and to Coach Bowden. Well, the next day, third long shows up, and uh, I'm up in the booth looking at coverages and things of that nature. Coach Bowden at that time was calling plays. Well, he hesitated just for a moment, and as <laughs> to not being sure what he, what he wanted to call, and I jumped in there like a knucklehead <laughs> and said, hey, coach, Red Red 200 Exxon. That was the name of the play, Red 200 Exxon. And uh, he's like, what, what? <laughs> I said, that play last night we talked about. He goes, does Chip know what to do? That was the quarterback. He was a true freshman, by the way. And uh, I'm like, yeah, he knows what to do. He goes, timeout, timeout. So he calls timeout. He lets me get on the headset with Chip. <laughs> and I explained to Chip, you know, if it's, if it's, if the safeties go deep, we're throwing this square in this little 16 yard route. Mm. And, uh, but if they, if the safeties come up and play cover zero, man to man, we'll throw this post over the top. And, uh, so he's yes, sir. And me and, and sure enough, they, uh, they bring the blitz and we picked it up. Uh, we, cause we were in the right protection and then Chip laid out a beautiful deep bomb to 
uh, the receiver who was running a deep post route. And by the way, we were down 20 to 10 at the time mm. in the game, uh, in this, at least in the second half anyway. And, um, and we scored a touchdown, got within three, and then got to stop and scored again. So it was kind of a, a defining moment for me to, to gain some credibility, not only with Coach Bowden and the offensive staff, mm. but even the defensive coaches, because they were up in the box with me wondering what this – young graduate assistant coach is doing, trying to help Coach Bowden make a call. <laughs> hey, let know? me talk to head coach real quick. Let me talk to him. You gotta, you gotta <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it was kind of, I just blurted it out, and by the grace of God, it worked. Hmm. And uh, so little by little, I, be, I gained more and more ability to use some of the ideas that I had learned as a young quarterback at Miami. That that's such a fun story. And even to hear you, you know, you know, every detail of that game. And yeah, that's, that's awesome. Well, we didn't plan for this question, but I know as you, your story, you've just shared so much about coach Bowden uh, and your spiritual walk and even your coaching journey. And um, you know, as, as many who are listening know, is he just passed away recently and I know right. he, you guys were very close and that was uh, so right. sorry for your loss. And I know, sorry for the entire loss of, college football in the world. Just an incredible man. Um, if you wouldn't mind just sharing, you know, I think when we talk about leadership, there's mentors in our lives who help pave the way for us, show us the way. And man, as you're sharing your story, coach Bowden keeps coming up over and over again. He gave you your, you know, your first shot, you came back as an OC, then you went over to, to Georgia. You know, he led, you know, he was the one who led you to Christ. There's so much there. Um, can you just share a little bit about what Coach Bowden meant to your own leadership journey and then kind right. of the the necessity of having somebody like that? Right. Well, he helped me understand that there's more than one, one way to skin a cat. Uh, you know, I was under Coach Howard Schnellenberger that I mentioned at uh, University of Miami as a player, and he was kind of cut from the uh, Bear Bryant mold. He played for Bear Bryant and uh, I think coached for Bear Bryant at one time. And, uh, you know, he had a certain style of leadership that was very effective, you know, won a national championship, took Miami from nothing to their first national championship in 1983. So highly successful. Uh, but he, he was more, he was not that, uh, he, I would say he coached more out of, uh, fear and intimidation, uh, like probably 90% of the coaches do at the collegiate level. Uh, or it seems that way. And then I go to coach at Florida State after being a player under Coach uh, Coach Schnellenberger. I become a coach under Coach Bowden. Well, Coach Bowden's completely different. Hmm. You know, he, he motivated through uh, compassion and, and love, and you know, he wanted to capture the heart of the player, and he truly had uh, his priorities in order in, in regard to his faith and his family and football. I mean – People say that a lot, but he, you know, I got to watch him live it up for the 15 years I was there. And so what I learned probably more than anything is that you got to be who you are. You know, you, you can't try to be somebody else. Um, more than one style can work if you are real, you're genuine, and you're, you still have to be prepared. You still have to be a competitor. You still have to be competent obviously, and what you do, but your personality is something special that only you have, and there's no one like you, and you can't be like somebody else. So 
I think it's okay to read about other leaders and how they went about it and maybe even try to emulate some of the things that they did, but to try to change your personality to be somebody you're not, it first of all, it takes too much energy. And maybe more importantly, people under you are going to see that you're not genuine and your players especially will sniff that out in a heartbeat. They, just, they want you to be real. They want you to be genuine. And, and I think that that's really important when it comes to leadership. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that. Well, before we get to our next question, let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor. Let's face it, you didn't become a pastor to be an accountant, and you didn't attend seminary to learn about software. Still, managing money is crucial for any thriving organization, which means if you're doing anything wrong, then you're risking the financial health and viability of your church. Thankfully, our friends at Belay know this well. Belay, an innovative staffing solution with over 10 years of experience serving churches, has successfully matched thousands of organizations with experienced U.S.-based virtual bookkeepers, virtual assistants, and social media strategists. And they are offering all of our podcast listeners a free download of their resource, Five Ways a Church Bookkeeper Can Transform Your Day, which shares the five most positive changes that will come out of hiring a bookkeeper for your church. So just text LIFEWAY to 55123. That's L-I-F-E-W-A-Y to 55123 for your free download. And if you do so, you will be one step closer to reclaiming precious time every week to do what only you can do. Now, back to the podcast. Well, Coach, I'm sure throughout your uh, coaching journey, there's not too many mistakes, not too many plays where, unlike the one you were sharing about where the play worked perfectly, that the play did not go as well as you had hoped. But looking back, uh, what would you say was your biggest mistake as a leader getting started? Um, I think for me, it was what happens when you're an assistant coach watching the coordinator or you're the assistant coach or coordinator watching the head coach. I mean, you watch, you watch and you, and you, you, you observe what they do and you're like, well, I don't know why he's doing that. You know, I'd probably do this or I'd probably do that. Mm -hmm. And somehow, you know, you get this magical feeling that you could have handled something a little bit better um, or a little bit differently that, but what happens is until you sit in that seat, you really don't understand uh, the magnitude of the, uh, and the weight of the responsibility, you know, going like when I went from quarterbacks coach to uh, offensive coordinator, I, I was coaching four guys in a room as a quarterback's coach. I've become a coordinator. Now I'm coaching coaches. I'm responsible for, uh, you know, 75 guys or whatever it is. And you got to answer to the head coach and to the media for the first time in your life. So all of a sudden you're sitting in a chair that you're not used to sitting in and you thought, Hey, this, this thing will be so bad. And all of a sudden uh, you realize that it's a lot bigger than you thought. And then you go from coordinator to head coach and that's just nuts. Uh, you become, <laughs> you know, basically the CEO of a multi-million dollar program hmm. and have all the responsibilities of all the coaches, all the support staff, all the players, you got to recruit, you got to, raise money. You got to handle the um, 
the boosters, the administration, the media, uh, the players' discipline. I mean, just all the things that fall on your table all of a sudden, uh, it's hard to be ready for it. So um, I think in the beginning I had, even when I became head coach, I had some of the similar feelings that I had at East Carolina, the feelings of inadequacy. And like, uh, this job's too big for me. You know, God, why'd you do this to me? You know, I want out, you know, and, uh, but you got to hang in there and just take it, you know, one step at a time, one day at a time, one moment at a time. I, I guess, you know, if you look at a pizza and you think you're going to eat it in one bite, mm. you know, it could be overwhelming, but if you take it little by little and break it into smaller pieces, then, uh, you can, you can handle it. Mm. Well, so, so people, so for people who don't fully understand, because when you say, all right, as a, as a quarterback coach, you're coaching like four <clears throat> coaches, you know, offensive coordinator, well, you said, excuse me for, I should have been more deliberate. I mean, more specific. I'm coaching four players. Basically. Yeah. Four players. Yeah. And now as a, as an OC, you're talking about 75 people that you're, that you're looking after. And then, so as a head coach, how many personnel I'm using that broadly, whether sure. it's coaches and right. coordinators and players, how many people are you now right. overseeing? Well, if you count all the administrate, all the uh, support staff, when it comes to academics, when it comes to recruiting, when it comes to uh, nutrition, strength and conditioning, uh, all the players, all the coaches, all the mm. graduate assistant coaches, uh, all the what they call analysts and things like that. You know, you're talking. I mean, you could probably safely say three to five hundred people. Wow! Wow! But then you wow. have. I mean, you just you still got a fan base of sounds like it too. All scrutinizing everything. Yeah, and the, but the thing that you don't realize too is, I knew I'd have a. I knew I'd have an influence over players. I knew I'd have an influence over coaches. I know I'd have influence over strength and conditioning, nutritionists and all those kind of things. But I, I never dreamed of the amount of influence you have over a fan base mm-hmm. and even the media. I mean, literally there, there's a, there's a gentleman by the name of Todd Unzicker, who's yep. the uh, president, I think of the Southern Baptist Convention in the state of North Carolina. He's, he's the big dog, whatever title that is. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was in the media as a recruiting guy, recruiting guru, and through him kind of watching me operate and get to know me, and he kind of got attracted to what I was about. I mean, he came to know Christ. Wow. And wow. Then, I mean, it changed his life. I mean, I, I never mm-hmm. would have dreamed I'd have some kind of influence. And it wasn't me, obviously. It was the Holy Spirit doing it, but... Mm-hmm. But just through trying to be obedient to God and live in a certain way and making decisions based on certain things, um, he was like, "This this guy's different." Hmm. And, uh, and as it turned out, he uh, he he came to know Christ. So that was, uh, you know, again, some influence that you never dream you have when you're in mm-hmm. a position of leadership like that. Hmm. Well, thinking about just that that influence that God gave you, um, and you couldn't imagine, you know, the scope of that when you stepped into into right. coaching. But it's clear now, not just for you reminiscing on it all, but I think for a lot of us looking back on it, I got friends that I know are listening right now, Georgia Bulldog fanatics, <laughs> like you said. Right. Uh, you know, just the way God has used you is just so clear. 
So you've coached thousands of, of college athletes and they've learned how to be a better football player, better man under your leadership. What was the biggest thing you learned about developing leadership and character in college students? Right. Well, a lot of my guys uh, came from, you know, fatherless homes. Uh, maybe as many as two thirds of them. Wow. Uh, over half, wow. I would say for certain. Mm. And I can't tell you guys how many times a mother came to me in the recruiting process and said, hey, I could, I could teach my son a lot of things, but I can't teach him how to be a man. Mm. Would you do that for me, coach? Mm. And so, yeah, wow. That's like, that's a huge responsibility. And I took it very seriously and I wanted to try to help these guys grow. It's, it's, you know, they're going from the boyhood stage to the manhood stage. And, and by the time you leave college, you got to be ready to be a man and take care of business. And, and I felt like I felt a very big responsibility to help teach them, you know, as they're young in their career, you know, characteristics of, of leadership and doing things right. And then, you know, practically, you know, down the road as they become older, you know, get into leadership positions uh, so they'll be able to handle it with their families and in their communities down the road. I mean, one of the things we did, we always did something to help grow them from a character standpoint in the spring and the summer. And one of the things that we did was we always did community service projects in the summertime. And I wasn't allowed to mandate it, but I mandated it anyway and said, look, <laughs> you, you guys are going to, you guys are going to do two projects every summer. Mm. I'll let you choose from these five or 10 things, whatever it is, but mm. uh, you guys choose which ones you want to do. And I did that because, you know, I know this, if you do something for someone who can't help you back, it does something to you. Mm. It, it changes you, you, the way you look at life a little bit, you know? And so a lot of these guys after college is over, have become, you know, leaders in their communities and doing all kinds of things to help, Bless, you know, the people in their communities, mostly the kids growing up. Mm. But um, so, you know, that was important. And then one summer in Miami, uh, when it came to, you know, the, there's kind of a theme of every summer. In the summer, uh, that particular summer, the theme was going to be talking about man, manhood and fatherhood. Mm. And I was looking for a, I'm, I'm going to, you know, lead the thing. And I'm looking for a definition of manhood on the internet, right? Well, I thought I'd find something quick. I couldn't hardly find anything that was worthy of repeating. Wow. At least the way I felt like it should be repeated. And until uh, I finally came across a sermon by Dr. Tony Evans, mm. who's a pastor in Dallas, Texas area. Mm. He was the chaplain for the Cowboys at one time, I know. Mm. I think his son might be now. But he is, Jonathan. yep. Yep. But anyway, uh, he is given a sermon on manhood. He said there's three hoods. He said there's malehood, M-A-L-E hood. And you, you kind of are born with a certain body part. And then guess what? You're in the malehood stage. Hmm. Then he said there's a, another hood called, the, called boyhood. Hmm. And he said when you're in the boyhood stage, you're, high, you're, you're irresponsible uh, and you're highly dependent on somebody to take care of you. Mm. So you're immature, you're irresponsible, and you're highly dependent on someone to take care of you. 
And that's the boyhood stage. And he says, it's okay to be in the boyhood stage when you're eight <laughs> or 12 or 13, maybe 14. But when you get to be 18, 19, 20, mm. 28, 38, you know, if you're still irresponsible, undependable and count on somebody to take care of you, mm. whether you like it or not, you're in the boyhood stage. You're still a boy. Mm. And, uh, so if you want to be treated like a man, act like a man, and when you get into the manhood stage, obviously you're, you're going to take care of business mm. and uh, be responsible for yourself and for others around you. And that's kind of how he described it. And I loved it. And then I added fatherhood as another hood. Yeah. And uh, we just talked about how fatherless homes uh, these children have so much more to battle than other children. Mm. And, uh, and I said to them, I said, look, I don't care if you came from a great home with a great dad or a home without a dad, or you don't even know who your dad is. I said, if you decide that you want to be, you want to man up and get into this manhood stage and, <clears throat> and be a guy who loves his wife, like Christ loved the church and be a guy who loves his children and be a guy who's going to be a leader in his community. You can change any cycle that has been going on in your in your home. And and guess what? When you raise your children, your daughter's going to know what, how to find the right kind of man. Your your son's going to know how to treat a woman, mm. and they'll they'll probably find the right kind of people to marry, and they'll bless their children, which are your grandchildren and and beyond. So within a, a couple generations, you might affect fifty to one hundred people's lives mm. because you decided you're going to man up, you know? So those are some of the kind of things I'd talk to those guys about during those meetings. Hmm. Yeah. I love I the intentionality. So yeah. Well, let's move to the quick hitter questions here. And these are going to be short one minute answers. And we'll get started with this one. What is your ideal daily routine? So what time do you wake up, get into the right. office, all that good stuff? Well, nowadays I don't go in the office because you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm semi-retired, retired from coaching. Yep. But my best day, I'll get up and uh, after at least eight to 10 hours of sleep, okay, which I never got <laughs> as a coach. <laughs> so first of all, you got to get that sleep. Then I get up and I make my breakfast, which is every morning the same thing. I got egg whites scrambled up with uh, green peppers, mushrooms, onions, and jalapenos. Ooh, love that. And I have that with a little spark, a little uh, AdvoCare energy drink. Mm. instead of coffee I don't like coffee mm. and I'll do my workout uh, which is climbing stairs and a little bit of weights with my dumbbells mm. and then I'll stretch for about 20 minutes after about a 50 minute workout and then I'll get in a hot shower and when I get out of that hot shower I feel awesome so <laughs> that's the best way for me to start the day <laughs> that's awesome well, let me ask you this. So what's your, uh, in all the different things you've done, what's your first, uh, favorite personality test? Personality test? Yeah. You talking about the names of the tests you take to, to judge personality? <laughs> well, I'll say this, the five lung would like the five love, love languages. Uh, I forgot the name of the guy. Gary, that. Is that Gary Chapman? Yeah. Gary Chapman. Yeah. That, that was very, very, uh, it's, it's an awesome thing to do for your marriage for sure. But it also is very handy when it comes to, when you know, you, when you know the love language of your children, you communicate better to them and show them love. And then mm. truly as a coach, 
uh, you, you could start to figure out what these kids love languages were too. And be able to, because one size doesn't fit all when it comes to capturing the heart of a player or a person, mm. a wife or a, or a child, you know, they all, they all get feel love different ways. And that love language study was very, very instrumental for me to help, to help teach me how to, how to show people I loved them. Hmm. What is an unusual habit that helps you in your leadership? Uh, I think um, I'm kind of slow to anger kind of guy. I'm kind of a, I don't, I've got a boiling point and, uh, but I, I'm pretty patient with things and I can calmly say that, you know, if, if you keep doing this, you, I'm going to kick you off the team and don't, don't take my calmness for thinking that, you know, if, if I need to yell and scream at you to get through to you, I'll do that. But, you know, I'm trying to help. I'm trying to explain to you what has to happen mm. while being calm doing it. But, uh, but because I have a, a long boiling point, when I do get to the boiling point where I do flip a little bit, <laughs> I flip the switch. I mean, about every, I don't know, every couple of weeks I might snap. And then everybody's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so this is, you know, it, it just lets, it, it, I think a little teeny bit of fear is healthy when it comes to dealing with these uh, players and your coaches too, to a certain degree. Yeah, they're all like, is it going to be me this time? I don't know where we are on the boiling point radar. <laughs> yeah. Listen, just, just interviewing you, I'm like, I don't think I need to see you snap. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was right, so when I did, it was like, Oh, you know, everybody went and ran for cover. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your favorite app? Do you use your phone like a, a ton? Like what's your favorite app on your phone? Um, well, there's a game I play called free. So I just, I wear it out. You know, I'm just <laughs> classic, sitting there, classic. sitting there at an airport waiting for a plane or <laughs> just got time to kill. I, I think it's, I do think it's good for my brain. Because it does, you know, makes you think, and it's it's not just a mindless game. Mm. And there's a challenge to it, but you know, I've I'm on level like 700. I don't <laughs> He's like, I'm breaking the record. <laughs> yeah, so I play that a lot. Oh, that's great. What has been the best book that you've read in the past six months? Well, I read Kingdom Man by uh, mm. uh, who was that? That's Dr. Tony Evans, right? Yep, that is. Tony Evans, yeah. Yep. Yeah, Dr. Tony Evans, the same guy taught me about manhood and all that mm. kind of good stuff. Uh, I read that, and um, and I I've done this Romans Bible study, Romans one through eight. I've done it probably eight to ten different times over the years, and mm. uh, one of my spirit, well, my spiritual mentors, his name was Bob Warren, did the study. 30 years ago in a FCA camp, but uh, mm. I've always kind of referred to that and referred to him. Unfortunately, he's passed away. He was a guy when I was reading scripture and not understanding something, and I could call him and just say, Bob, explain this to me, please. <laughs> and, you know, he's gone now, but I'm actually uh, starting the study with about 10 men in their, you know, probably mid twenties to mid thirties kind of getting off the ground as husbands and fathers. And uh, we're going to go through that study. Uh, matter of fact, our first meeting was last Wednesday and we're mm. going to go through that. And I love, I love doing that. Mm. 
All right. What one sentence advice would you give someone going into a leadership position for the first time? Well, I'm going to give a quick story. Hmm. When I was, uh, had my nose in the carpet when I first came to Georgia and I was overwhelmed by the weight of the responsibility. Um, I was crying out to God saying, I can't do it. And, uh, in my spirit, he said, I will certainly be with you. Hmm. Same thing he said to, um, who's at the burning bush? Mm, Moses. Yeah. Moses. Yeah. yeah Moses yeah. is like, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Who am I? Who am I to, to go save the people mm-hmm. from Pharaoh? And God, the first thing God said is, I will certainly be with you. Mm. And so if you know that, you can, you can do it. Mm. And, and when you, you make the mistake of thinking it's all you, then that's when you get crushed. But when you know God will be with you, and then you can make it. Mm-hmm. And I need that. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Well, Coach Rick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. And we thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, you're going to want to check out his new book called Make the Call. Um, And you can learn more about that by just finding it wherever books are sold. And we hope this has been helpful to you and your leadership. If it has, head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review to help other leaders like yourself find the podcast. And we'll see you next week.